Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to this wonderful issue of Masters. I am sitting with an incredible man, and um, I tell you, I only heard about this wonderful man less than a month ago, and so I started doing lots and lots of research. I bet I have done more research to prepare for this Masters interview than any other interview I've done in the past, and that, that wasn't just because I needed to study this man to prepare, but because the material that I'm studying absolutely is at the forefront of what's happening in our country right now with social unrest. And so we're all looking for mentors and heroes to guide us. And that's why this incredible man came uh, into my uh, awareness. And I'm sitting here today with Eric Fulbright, who is the director of inclusive cultures at Best Buy. So Eric, welcome to Masters. And I, I appreciate it. I'm excited to be a part of this journey with you and excited that um, I was fortunate enough to marry my wife, Janice, who introduced me to Paul Mitchell. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. You know, we, we always manage to get the best of the best because of our spouses, right? <laughs> they're, they're the ones who keep us connected in the right way, right? <laughs> Amen. I appreciate that. <laughs> so uh, just a little bit more about who Eric is. He is a 22-year veteran of the organization at Best Buy and has spent the last 12 years as a leader in human resources. Eric has helped Best Buy define inclusive leadership, which we're going to get into today, and become one of the best companies to work for. His career hallmark is helping leaders co-create cultures where every employee feels valued and can contribute to their full potential. Obviously, I'm reading this, but such great information. In addition to his day job, Eric is an ordained elder, longtime youth ministry leader, and a coach. Eric believes every human being is of immeasurable value, and the best leaders appreciate the value through the purposeful creation of inclusive cultures. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Eric has been married to his best friend, Janice Fulbright, for 23 years. And they have five children. The family loves to travel, cook, play sports, and just find ways to be silly together. I like that one, to be silly together. How old are your children? Yeah, so we have uh, four boys and one daughter. Um, So our oldest son is 25. He's actually practicing HR as well in the Army um, at Fort Drum in New York. I have a 17-year-old son who's a senior in high school, a 14-year-old son who's a freshman in high school, and we have nine-year-old twins that are in the fourth grade. A boy and a girl. Boy-girl twins. Oh, my, oh, my. <laughs> well, uh, congratulations on that. You, you have a 25-year-old son. You don't look like you could have a 25-year-old son. So, um, And that's I'm why all... I keep my hair cut low, so you can't see all the gray hairs that are growing. <laughs> well, I, I <laughs> like your hair If they get any longer, I'm going to just convert to your hairstyle. <laughs> Oh, it's coming. Trust me. You'll, you'll want to bick it one day. You'll want to take it all off. It's a good thing. So I want to preface this by letting our listeners know all the different topics that we're going to be covering here today before we jump into this. And because sometimes people think, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not a manager. I never shop at Best Buy. I have nothing to do with Paul Mitchell. So why do I need to listen to this? And so just let me give you a preview of what Eric and I are going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the importance of exposure. Eric says that without exposure, a person will not have the opportunity to compose a great final image. 
We're going to talk about the importance of dreaming big, because as Eric says, if you can dream big, you can hang around people who are big and things are going to happen. Converting dreams into reality, something that Eric prides himself on doing for others. We're going to talk about unlocking people's potential. And as was mentioned before, we're going to talk about inclusive leadership, which is the environment and culture at Best Buy, which allows your employees at Best Buy to bring their best selves forward. So there's a lot. And this is a very critical and exciting time globally as we are dealing with and hopefully addressing injustices, civil unrest, and racial tension. And I don't, I don't believe that we're born racist. It is absolutely something that we are taught. I believe that we all have the potential to be racist and to be judgmental. I'm a white guy, and my life experience is now teaching me to listen and learn. See, if all I do is talk, then I'm really not learning and I'm not growing. And I'm, I'm viewing this time, I'm experiencing this time in my life uh, with what's happening in this country as a time for me to personally learn and grow, uh, which again, Eric, is why I'm so grateful to have you here today. And I thank you for taking the time. When I reached out to you, you immediately said yes. And we've gone back and forth over the last several weeks to prepare for this. And so uh, once again, Eric, thank you. Thank you so, so much. So let me just ask you, with everything that's been going on, I have a feeling that you have been very busy in the last several months. And just in a nutshell, what, what are you experiencing right now? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the last uh, few years have been extremely busy, but what the last two and a half months have done is proven to those who have been on the sidelines that they've got to get involved in this work of creating uh, more diverse, more inclusive, and more equitable cultures. Um, and I'm not just seeing this happen in corporate America, uh, but because of some of the non-for-profit organizations that I'm involved with, you're seeing, um, you know, churches and, you know, various uh, social groups really begin to try and tackle this particular problem that we're seeing um, divide our country. And the reality is, if you, if you just, you know, peel away the emotion, which is really hard to do, and just look at the data, you know, right now, the majority of our um, youth, 18 and younger, are diverse. They would be considered what we call minorities. But what it really means is the balance between those who identify as white and Hispanic and those who identify as something else is reaching a point where it's more balanced. And by 2045, that group that we have been calling the minority for so long in our country becomes the majority from a number perspective. And so, you know, you can get caught up in like who has the bigger root, which I think is not very productive. Or you can realize what this means is that there'll be more diverse opinions and perspectives in every environment over the next 20 years. And so how do we work together when you have that diverse group interacting and sharing stories and perspectives? If you can harness that, it's actually going to be a great benefit. If you look at any um, successful group or practice or any invention, there's usually great diversity behind it. Usually see it marketed as a particular person or group develop something. And I don't care if you look at the light bulb, the air conditioner, the GPS, even the rockets that we sent to the moon, 
there were very diverse teams that developed um, those products and produced the outcome that we celebrate. And so it, our ability as a country, as individuals and as groups to really embrace diversity and, and leverage it as a benefit is one of those things that can actually propel society forward as opposed to what we're seeing today as something is tearing our society apart. You know, even without the social unrest that we're experiencing, what you just said is just such great business advice. The idea of uh, harnessing and collaborating with the differences that we have. I've often said that two people who agree on everything means that one's unnecessary. We want to bring different perspectives and different opinions and different life experiences to the equation. Why? Because that's what's going to take us to the next level. You know, if we focus on, on what we're not good at, I believe that that's our opportunity for growth. It's easy to sit around and brag about all the things that we know and all the things that we're good at, but that's so limiting. You know, if you're the smartest person in your organization and your family, I feel sorry for you. So we, we absolutely do need to harness and uh, embrace that difference. So, and when you talk about being on the sideline, people are on the sideline and they say things like, well, I don't see color. What do you mean by that? People sitting on the sideline. Yeah, you know, I, the sideline folks and, you know, there's been a lot of even controversy around, you know, former President Roosevelt, and I'm referring it to Teddy, um, but he said something actually quite profound in that um, it's actually the people that are in the arena that should be able to be the ones that talk and share the perspective around um, what is necessary and next, because they're actually in the fight, as opposed to the spectator that is pointing and, and sort of jeering and saying, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And I think for a long time, people have around these issues of inequality, um, whether we're talking about economic or education or, or in the workplace, um, people said, you know what, we've got all these laws that are in place that prevent these things from happening. Therefore, they don't really exist anymore, right? Slavery was a long time ago. Civil rights was a long time ago. Our country has progressed since then. But again, I'm a data person. When, when you start to look at the data, it's just not true. And even when you look at, you know, the amazing laws that, you know, many of our great leaders um, did in what I consider very bipartisan ways, often you'll see other laws that counteracted that almost immediately. And so the reality is, if you just look at, you know, sort of what is marketed towards you versus looking at the data and trying to understand what's happening, um, not just to yourself, but to others, because you know, I've been, you know, blessed to grow in corporate America. And so the narrative for my family is much different than the narrative I experienced uh, growing up. And so I could easily go, well, that's not happening anymore because my reality doesn't demonstrate that. Well, if you're only looking at your own reality, you know, you're never going to have a full picture. You really got to be able to look at different perspectives and in the full picture to understand what's, what's happening. And so if you, when I come back to that sideline or comments like, you know, I don't see color. To say I don't see something is, is to actually discount someone else's experience. Like, when, when I see you, I see all of you. That's inclusive of your color. And just like people say, well, I'm proud of my blackness. My, my blackness is beautiful. I feel the same way about your whiteness, if that's how you would say that's how you identify that way. 
because it's actually the, the, the collective diversity that's most beautiful. It's not the individual components of it, though they all have beauty in it. It's most beautiful when you bring it all together. You know, a flower is beautiful not because of just the petals or just the stem or just the leaves. It's, it's the whole composition of it that makes it truly beautiful. And I feel the same way about humanity. And so those that are okay with saying only components of it are beautiful or, or things are not actually the way that they're being described are those are in my opinion like those fans of games that are you know making fun of the folks on the court it, you just can't do that I'll, I'll give one more example i'll turn it back over to you you know in, in the coaching arena you know for a while I, you know my, my kids were in youth sports and i would see parents particularly in football yell at a child and say get up you're not hurt and I would literally turn around and say, they're the ones on the field. If that child tells me they're hurt, they're hurt. And, you know, as a coach, I feel like I had to be the number one advocate for the child, even some cases when a parent wasn't, um, because it's often the people that are not in the arena that are trying to drive the narrative and what's happening. And, and you got to get on the field and you got to get involved um, to really get a perspective of what's really happening. Gosh, what a, what a great analogy that is, that you're not on the field. You don't really know what's going on. It's just your perspective from the sideline. I'll tell you something. Uh, you know, prior to the social injustices in the last several months, I bet I prided myself on saying, oh, I don't see color. I, I probably thought that that was a good thing to say or to believe. And, and I'm learning. I'm, I'm listening and I'm doing better than I was a couple of months ago. And I'm, I don't think it's by accident that this social injustices and, and then the movement and these diverse peaceful protests and the, the corporate response, I don't think it's by accident that this all is happening during uh, the pandemic, during the quarantine, because it's like there's this captive audience, you know, we're all on pause with work, we're all on pause from going out to restaurants and to the gym and to, to salons and, and social gatherings. We're all on pause, sitting at home, waiting to be released, so to speak. And that's when this all happened. It's like everybody's attention is available. Everybody can, can pay attention to this. And I think that that's absolutely on purpose and is a very, very good thing. So do you feel like this moment in time is going to be different than previous movements? And if so, how do you think it's different? The reality is I think it's going to be different for some. Um, just like with any movement, there will be some that will carry this beyond passion and emotion into action and will at the same time build ways to sustain that beyond the moment. And you can see with some individuals and organizations that's totally true. Um, but at the same time, because, you know, you can't get away from the fact that in the United States, we are predominantly an economic engine. And so whether it's purposeful or accidental, we're already primed to take advantage of any big moment as a way to market or to um, make money. And so a lot of organizations, to be honest with you, are saying that they are, you know, supporting Black Lives Matters through their platforms. But what they're really doing is they're benefiting from the marketing that you can get from doing that. 
And the way you could easily tell is the actions behind what they're doing. Because if you're really behind a movement, your actions should solve for the issues that that particular movement is facing. And so it's one thing to say, I support it, or I'm going to write a check. It's something completely different to say, I'm going to get involved with police reform, right? My organization is going to meet with the governor, the mayors, the city councils, the police department to actually talk about the necessary change on behalf of my employees, which are representative of my community that are experiencing this every day versus I'm writing a check. Because to me, it's just reallocation of marketing funds in many cases. In the organizations that are really committed to this work, you're going to see them do things that go far beyond um, just putting up commercials or, you know, Instagram or Facebook postings um, saying they're aligned to the movement. They've got to put action behind that. Well, how do you find balance in that? Because you work for a for-profit company. Best Buy is a for-profit company. And so absolutely, profitability is very, very important. So how do you balance that with the role that you play at Best Buy? Yeah, you know, one of the things is you have to be able to look at, like, what is your organization's purpose? Of course, organizations make money, but an organization has to have a purpose that goes beyond making money. Because you're, you know, making money, and you know this because you've been a business owner and leader for quite some time, when, you know, that's going to ebb and flow, you know, and if your sole purpose is to make money, you can get really lost um, during times like we're in today, versus if you're really clear on your purpose, then what you can do is you, you can ensure that you continue to fulfill that purpose in these really challenging times. And that should produce an outcome that is resonant with your employees, number one, and your customers, number two, that propels your business. And it's just a different way of thinking of it. The, the, the result of that should be that you have a value proposition that's resonant with the customer that allows you to grow. You know, like I mentioned earlier on the call, you know, one of the things that is built into our inclusive leadership behaviors is this thought around empathy. And so when we were initially going through the pandemic and we were adjusting our operating model to meet the needs of our customers, and we began to survey customers and say, you know, why is it that you continue to shop with us? Because we way outperformed what Wall Street said we could do. The customer said that it was our ability to listen and understand and connect to what their needs were in this current moment. Um, and so they described empathy as the reason why um, they continue to invest in us because we were investing in what they needed um, as a customer. While you're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm taking so many notes and I have so many incredible things to, to ask you, especially when we get into some of the steps that you use to define inclusive leadership, which empathy is one of those things. And we're going to get into that. But I love your whole message about purpose, that, that every person, every family and every for-profit company and organization needs to have a purpose. And the purpose can't always be in fact, I, I strongly believe that it can't be about making money. Money is the byproduct of doing the right thing. In my organization, we have strongly followed the philosophy of being a part of what we call Generation G. The G stands for generosity. And there are so many studies that prove 
that 85% of consumers will switch from one brand to another brand, from one company to another product, based on whether or not that brand is giving back to their local community. Meaning I, as a consumer, as a customer, I have a choice of how I'm going to spend my money. And of course, I make a decision with my head, but I also make a decision with my gut. Meaning, do I like you? Do I trust you? And are, are you just as concerned with doing good things as a good neighbor, as a good citizen, as a good human being on this planet, as you are with putting money in your pocket? And you know this, employees are more loyal, uh, customers are more loyal when they see that while their purpose really is not about making money. That's the byproduct. Their purpose is about making a difference on this planet. Yeah, you nailed it, Wayne. So let me jump into this a little bit. Again, I have lots of questions about your personal life and about your experience as, as a black man, which I want to get into. But as long as we're talking about the business side of this, how did you end up with a career in HR, inclusion, and diversity for a Fortune 100 company? Where, where did you start? Well, it's been an interesting journey. And, you know, I'll tell you that, you know, initially um, I was going to school to become a doctor. Um, I remember even when dating my wife, sometimes she would join me to anatomy or biology classes. And that's what I thought I wanted to do with, with my life. And to be honest, a big part of that was driven by a conversation I had with my grandfather when we would visit my grandmother, who was terminally ill at the time at the hospital. And you know, I just asked him, I said, you know, what does it take to become a doctor? And, and a lot of that, that conversation was driven around the economics of being a doctor, what they earned and how they lived and things of that nature. And so for a while, I thought that was why, you know, if I were, you know, to rethink that today, um, that, that wouldn't have been my, you know, determining factor because I still have a huge interest there. But because that's what initially drove my desire to be a doctor, it just it didn't pan out because it didn't line up with the direction of my life at the time. And so um, I ended up taking a few different uh, deviations for that. My wife said, hey, I, I really think we should move out of the city. We we're both living in Chicago at the time with my oldest son and said, you know, we think that moving out to the suburbs of Chicago would give him a better opportunities, um, which is a whole separate conversation, but also very true. And let's see if we can grow our family from there. And so we end up moving out to northwest suburbs of Chicago. And I needed to, you know, to find work while continuing through school. And I was working for a Best Buy out in the northwest um, suburbs at the time. And someone while you know working there came up to me and said, what, what are your career aspirations? What do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to school. I'm, I'm working here while going to school. And they said, you know, you could actually grow your career here and sat me down in a, a break room. And you, it was a long time ago. It was one of those, those times where like, you could still smoke inside. And so <laughs> that, that ages me a little bit as well. Uh, when, and so I'm sitting there trying to find a spot where that wasn't happening. And he said, let me walk you through, you know, all the opportunities that exist here. And at the time, Best Buy was a growing uh, company. It's not the organization it is today. It certainly wasn't a Fortune 100 company at the time. And um, he actually showed me or exposed me to the opportunities that were available. And I grew in various leadership roles, predominantly in our stores over the next few years. I actually, you know, through my wife, 
uh, made my way back to church and I got involved in church ministry, particular youth ministry. And I actually thought that I was going to become a pastor at that point. I thought that's what my calling was going to be from there. And very similar to uh, medicine, I started exploring that uh, particular path. It was, you know, going to visit seminaries and so forth. And again, I had a leader who happened to be a friend. We had grown up in the organization together. Said, could you please, as you're trying to figure this whole pastor thing out, just come work in my store. And, and what I told him was like, you know, I, I really think I'm done with this journey. I had been in these development programs to um, grow as a leader within the organization. I thought at that point I'd made up my mind I was going to become a pastor. And, but he convinced me while I was doing that to come in and work with him. And one of the first things he asked me to do was to sit in one of his leadership meetings. And I sat in this leadership meeting and I left the leadership meeting. He said, you know, what do you think? And I said, you know, the reason you're not making progress in this store is number one, you're not aligned. And number two, you all have different priorities. Like everybody wants to win, which is fantastic. But they like, they want to win for themselves. There's not an idea of we're doing this together and we're willing to give so that the collective can benefit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was, you know, caught off guard a little bit about the comment, but um, I would say humble enough to say, I'd like to continue this conversation more frequently. And so my job became really informal in that space. And the majority of the time I spent in the store was around leadership development and helping that team develop the type of synergy and strategy necessary uh, to be successful together. It ended up becoming one of the most successful uh, stores in the company, a, a location that the organization was actually looking at closing. Um, and since then actually, you know, has. But during that time, it became one of the most successful stores in the organization. And so during that time, I was asked to consider a career in human resources. And I actually laughed because at that time, I perceived human resources as a auditing function of business. You come in and prepare for Department of Labor audits, you know, you're, you're focused on payroll and benefits and all the things you customly um, associate with the HR. And so, you know, I actually had a regional HR manager say, I just would love you to spend some time um, with some of my, you know, HR leaders. And so I started going on a journey with several um, HR leaders, better understanding their work. And to continue to be transparent, the actual practice of HR was really evolving at that time into sort of the strategic business partner role, something similar to what I was already doing um, with this location. And so over a period of about two or three years, an opportunity came up um, to start sort of a business within a business. We had a partnership with a external company that we had been working with overseas. This is back when we had Best Buy Europe. Um, and they came over to the U.S. and we started a business sort of together. And I was asked if I'd be interested in joining HR as a part of this particular team. And so, you know, I agreed to do that. Obviously, agreement meant applying for it and being hired for it in code. And so I, I did that and was hired for the work. And uh, we actually uh, did a test within the organization and then uh, about six months after the test, the HR leader of that program came to me and said, do you think we could scale this across, at the time, 1,200 uh, locations in a very short period of time? Because you also know when in business, um, you got to move fast, even when it's a great idea and it's well thought out. So 
could we do it in this very short period of time? Really felt like we could. And then the job began to evolve. It involved everything from talent acquisition to training to learning and leadership development. And so I had the opportunity, in my opinion, to receive what I would consider a master's or PhD level um, education in the function of HR through this process. And so not only to have the opportunity to be an individual contributor in HR, an opportunity to um, become a more senior leader, and then eventually to become a leader of an HR team. So I had a team of HR managers across the entire US supporting this business. And then as a part of that, as I began to look at what were the opportunities within this business, I developed this muscle around inclusion and diversity because I truly felt like we had to, we had to meet the needs of our customer, one, in reflecting that customer, and two, understanding their perspective. And so as we begin to deepen our investment as an organization around inclusion and diversity, very similarly, someone say, hey, would you be willing to come and lead in this space? And over the past couple of years, that's what I've been doing as an inclusion and diversity leader for the organization. I mean, that, that story is incredible. Um, so it sounds to me like, you were still able to pursue your dream of becoming a, a minister, but you're just doing it in the world of for-profit. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and the funny thing is now I get to do it in both. And I learned, actually, the benefit of doing it in both is it helps both parts of my life. You know, you have a whole life, but sometimes you wear different hats. And when I'm ministering literally in a church, there are things I bring from my corporate experience to help you know, our, our membership to benefit from what I'm learning in sort of, you know, organizational and neuropsychology in that space. And then at the same time, able to take the experience I get from working very closely, intimately with people, sometimes at their most vulnerable places to help our organization become more human and make deeper connections with our employees and our customers. That's amazing because, again, your definition of, of what HR means is very, very different than the definition of HR for most companies. As you said, most companies, the definition is HR is all about uh, contracts and uh, handling disputes and complaints and payroll and that kind of stuff. And you're taking it to a whole different level where it's about developing employees personal development and leadership development of employees. I absolutely believe that if we teach our people how to be better human beings, how to fix their marriages, how to become philanthropists, how to, how to give back and make a difference in their families and their communities, then absolutely that's going to serve us well because they're better, more loyal, happier employees. And that sounds to me like that's the role that you've taken on. Yeah, when it, and you know, the earlier part of what you mentioned, right? So it's the policy and compliance part of it. Like every organization has to be good at that, right? Because you have the risk, right? The risk is, you know, fines and employee dissatisfaction and so forth. And you have to be able to, you know, avoid, you know, the types of uh, financial impact not being a good uh, fiscal steward through the practice that HR could cause. However, that's not where your leverage comes from. That's not how you grow your business or your connection, you know, that connection, we'll call it what the industry calls it, which is employee engagement or customer satisfaction. It doesn't grow from those things. It grows from what I've been describing around making those really deep human connections with people where you begin to get discretionary effort from employee and discretionary income from customers. 
Okay, you, you've said that part of the, the vision at Best Buy, what you've helped to create is that your employee population is representative of the customers and the communities that you serve. Now, how does that change from one community to the next? Because the customers that you serve and the employees that you might have in one community in one city might be very, very different than the makeup of another city. How do you, how do you change that between one store to another location? Yeah, so here's what I would say. If it was a matter of I, I don't think I could change it. I truly believe my role is to equip leaders, to provide resources, and to be the sort of internal consultant that helps them learn how to and do the work that we would describe as mirroring their communities and making deep connections with their employees. Because the leader has to do the work of understanding the community or the node in which they're going to operate. And what I would say as an organization, our leaders have um, become quite proficient at that, though there's still opportunity. We're not where we want to be as an organization. Um, And I would say that both of my um, not-for-profit work and of my corporate work. Uh, But when you begin to equip leaders, what happens is they actually, unit by unit, begin to do the work that lifts the overall organization. And so when their intention is, I really want to deeply understand the needs of my customer, and I deeply want to understand how my employees are interacting in that community, work within that community, and does the value propositions I offer, the products I offer meet those needs, um, you begin to see change. And if that's the motivation of every leader, then you're going to get momentum. If it's just a strategy that's being pushed by a particular person or group. And so in my, in my case, that'd be myself or the inclusion diversity team. It doesn't work. Um, it has to be something that is understood and driven by every leader. Got it. So if, if you're just trying to trickle it down from you, uh, by the time it does trickle down, it's really not going to have the, the right impact or the right um, result. So I get it that you're empowering your leaders in every location to understand the diversity of their employees and of their customers to then take this to the next level. Yeah. And when, if we could take it back up, maybe another level at the macro level, even beyond uh, corporate America, many of the things that we're trying to address are systemic issues. And so if the work that you do is not to change the system, what you end up doing is putting stop gaps in place. And so, you know, one of the things that I've learned in this space over the past couple of years is a lot of the initiatives that we put in place are actually stopgaps either for leadership or changing systems. And so if you really want to get, you know, the type of, you know, exponential or I would consider bold change that we know needs to happen, you have to address the leadership issue and you have to really change the system that's producing that outcome. Well, because I think that racism can absolutely be woven into the fabric of some companies and organizations. So this inclusive leadership message that you have, can we dive into that even more? Because you said that you divided this into four different areas that you have to be vulnerable. You have to show empathy. You have to demonstrate courage. 
and extend grace. Where, where did those four things come from? That, that came from your experience, that came from surveys that you did, input that you received. How, how did you come up with those four areas? Yeah, so I shared a little bit this, you know, when we were um, working on the intro together. Most organizations today are telling their leaders to be inclusive. Very few have defined what being inclusive means. And until you define it, you actually can't assess whether or not it's happening. Or if you do, you're assessing it in so many different ways that you don't build consistency or have any leverage to ensure that you're actually creating a more inclusive environment for everyone, right? So define it as your first step in sort of creating a standard. And so what, what I did is I began to um, research, you know, scholarly articles, other organizations that were further along than we are, because the reality is none of us are truly in this alone. And in, an, in the information age, you should be leveraging your networks and all the amazing things that other organizations and leaders are sharing to help advance your work. You mind, you mind if I ask you what some of those other organizations were? So Sedejo, so it's, it's spelled S-E-D-X-O. Um, so international organization, Deloitte. I also looked at a lot of the amazing work that uh, J.P. Morgan was doing in this space um, as well. Um, I looked at several universities particularly from a data and analytics perspective. So there's some amazing work that has come out of uh, University of Southern California. They have a, a partnership with a group called Policy Link, and they have something called the um, National Equity Atlas. And from an information perspective, just, just amazing data um, that I was able to glean from that organization. And, and several other, I would say, consultancy firms from uh, the Neural Leadership Institute, Corn Ferry. I, I could give you probably an hour-long list because there's just so much information out there. But what you do when you start to glean all of that information, oh, and I did leave out the McKinsey Group. That was also pretty important. They have an amazing article about the why behind diversity inclusion. Uh, but what you do when you, when you gather all the information is, You've got to be able to understand what is your organization's purpose and business strategy and sort of what do they really want to accomplish over the next 5, 10, 15 years. There's usually some sort of runway that the organization has developed. And that's how you came up with these four things. But first of all, just that, that lesson of that leaders need to do the research. Well, what, what do they say? If you steal from more than one source, it's called research. <laughs> <laughs> So the fact that leaders get the, get the message that you're not in this by yourself. You don't have to start from scratch. There are amazing companies and organizations that are further down this path than you are, and you need to do your research and even reach out to them. You know, in, in the world of customer service, we, we study companies like Disney and, and the Four Seasons Hotel, the Ritz-Carlton or Nordstrom's. There are other companies and businesses for profit that absolutely have ideas that we can steal from, so to speak. Yeah, you're, you're spot on, Wynn. And, and I'll tell you, it's very rare that if you look to make a connection 
and say, Here, here's an area that I'm really struggling in. I've noticed that you have expertise in this space. Would you be willing to give me 30 minutes or an hour to learn more that you get a no? I, matter of fact, I can't think of a single instance. Yeah, is that true? Yeah, no, nobody ever says no. You know, and what, what did they say? You only get what you ask for. And, and people are so afraid to ask for help. They're afraid to reach out to that more successful business down the street and say, could you mentor me? And I, I've never had anybody turn me down, ever. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and the amazing part about this, even as you, you know, mentioned some of the work about you know, understanding your customer and community, you'd be amazed what, you know, just slowing down and having a conversation with a customer, what you'll learn. They'll, I mean, they'll tell you what their experience is. Or you go in the community and say, hey, we're really struggling to, you know, to grow our business in this community. What are we getting wrong? And they'll tell you what you're getting wrong. But often, to your point, you don't ask. Like, yeah. And, and nowadays, they don't want to ask because they don't want to know. They think it's just bad news. My gosh, if my employees aren't happy, that's bad news. And I don't want to know about it. If my customer had a bad experience, that's bad news and I don't want to know about it. It's not bad news. It's information. It's information that can absolutely help you to grow, to improve, and to become more successful. Absolutely. Maybe it's 23 years of marriage. I get lots of constructive uh, feedback <laughs> and criticism. And so, you know, Janice is not shy about telling me when I'm getting it wrong. And I, I appreciate it. It doesn't always feel good. But at least, like I tell, I was like, at least now I know. There you go. There you go. Well, let, can we jump into these four areas then? Because I would like for you to define them. Again, be vulnerable, show empathy, demonstrate courage, and extend grace. Can you, can you explain or, or define each of those and, and what that means to your company's organization? Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things that I mentioned, you know, we, we have our company values, and then we we're actually coming off of some pretty extensive brand work as an organization. And so our brand work resulted in what we call a, a rally cry called let's talk about what's possible, which is really an open invitation to everyone. And so when I, when I was thinking about developing these inclusive leadership behaviors, it had to start from that place of let, how do you actually enable people to be in a space where they feel like they can truly talk about what's possible. And underneath that sort of rally cry in our brand are these three guiding behaviors. And number one is to be human, to make it real, and to think about tomorrow. So say those again, so, so to be human. Make it real. Make it real. And think about tomorrow. Think about tomorrow, great, okay. So for me, that set the tone for our culture and guided me in defining inclusive leadership. How would you define culture? The word culture, how would you define that? Culture are the expected norms and ways of interaction that exist within a particular group, okay. right? And so culture can happen at, you know, the you know, national level, it can happen um, and, you know, cities have cultures. Your family has a culture. Our, our homes have cultures, right? Yeah. And so, you know, when I, when I looked at our culture, when I'm referring specifically to Best Buy, um, that helped me in defining inclusive leadership for us. I, I do think that what I'll share applies far beyond us, but I, it needed to make sense for where our, we were operating and where we needed to go. And so as, as I'm 
sharing in this conversation with you, I think is important that if someone says, oh, you know, what Eric shared really resonates with me, that you don't just simply copy and paste because this isn't the only construct for defining inclusive leadership. Other organizations have different definitions. And so what you would have to do is like, like based on our culture, how would, how would a leader be able to show up inclusive? Got it. Okay, guide us, guide us into this. The four components. So, so number one is around vulnerability. And this is, a, this is the area where I start to get really particular, <laughs> even with our own organization, because the order is also purposeful, because one enables the next. And so that first piece is around vulnerability. And it, it, it's so important that we have a willingness to show weakness with an intentionality to grow and be stronger tomorrow. Because in an environment where you feel like you have to be perfect all the time, or I can't like show up and say, I just got in a really bad argument with my wife and I'm, I'm not at my best. Can we reschedule? Or my kid's really sick and I'm sorry I, I wasn't focused and my mind was on them. Like when we don't create spaces for that or to simply say, I don't know how to do that. Now, are you... When you say those things, are you talking about the employer or about the leader? Because I've often thought that a very attractive leader is someone who can say, guess what? I don't, I don't have the answer for that, but let's discover that together. A lot, lot of leaders think that to be a good leader, you have to be a know-it-all. And to me, that's so unattractive. Yeah, we actually started with leadership. And so we've exposed the organization to this, but we've been intentional that it really has started with our senior leaders. Our senior leaders have the most dialogue around this. Um, I would say, you know, our CEO, Corey Berry, is not only a champion around inclusive leadership, but I see her trying to practice it and internalize it on a regular basis. And so when you, when you see that, you know, there's a org psychology term, you know, that we're probably pretty familiar with, of uh, CEO syndrome, right? And you you basically described it as like, I feel like I got to know it all. Well, being vulnerable means that I'm, I'm going to solicit feedback. Like, how am I leading? What do you need? If you don't do that, you don't create an environment that, that can actually be inclusive. Because if, if I don't see that my leaders really say, you know, I really don't know exactly how we're going to do that. Let me pull in some experts. Like they got to demonstrate that. Because then the team now goes, I have permission to say, when the leader's saying, I need you to do X. Hey, you know, I really don't know how to do that. I know it's important to our strategy. Let me go pull some experts. What's our time? It just changes the dialogue completely. That's great. Let me go on to this next one. Show empathy. How does that play out? What does that look like? Yeah, empathy is really about being purposeful, about understanding the unique experience of everyone around you. If you are not, in my opinion, astute at perspective taking, you're really gonna struggle to create an environment of inclusion. Because often we'll feel like, well, you know, I've, I've got diversity on my team or, you know, the diverse folks are showing up. But if you're not truly taking the opportunity to learn about them, understand what their unique gifts and qualities and how they can fully contribute, if you don't understand those things, they're never gonna truly feel like they're part of it. And this is where things like, you know, allyship and listening skills, right? 
are really important. Because if, as a leader, if I'm not in a space where I can listen, or I feel like employees can coach and teach me something, you're never gonna have the perspective necessary to really grow individually or grow your business. See, this is one that I really appreciate hearing because you know, my, my other part-time job is as a speaker. <laughs> Meaning it's my job, I'm paid to speak, I'm paid to stand on a stage and talk nonstop for two hours. So the thing that I have to work on quite a bit is to just stop and listen. Yeah, and, and when again, this is another spaces, you know, where I think our, you know, our friends and our families can really help us. And so have Janice give me a call. <laughs> I love to ask questions. She coaches me in this space a lot, but I love to ask questions just to listen to what people have to say. I think that's great. The best way to build empathy is to become a good question asker, which you're practicing that all the time through masters. That's great. Well, thank you. (laughs) This next area, demonstrate courage. As part of inclusive leadership, we have to demonstrate courage. Explain that to us. You know, some of these are actually two-sided coins. And so courage is actually the other side of the vulnerability coin. When you bring up courage to leaders, particularly male leaders, I'll be honest, they kind of go, oh, yeah, I get courage, right? I'm going to stand up and do what's right. But actually, you can't truly demonstrate courage until you've demonstrated vulnerability. And I usually use a military example because everybody gets it when I talk about, about courage. Because we talk about how courageous the soldier was when they recognized that the grenade or an explosive device was thrown in front of their unit and they're gonna sacrifice themselves to say, they were so courageous. The reality is they were very vulnerable. They put themselves at risk on behalf of someone else. And so courage is not the, you know, we know it's not the absence of fear, but it's the willingness to act. But actually it doesn't work without vulnerability. And so I really try to get people to understand, especially if they're struggling with the vulnerability part, that courage and vulnerability actually work together as a bit of a system. So how you see it, if, if a leader is struggling with being vulnerable, i.e. They, they don't ask a lot of questions, they are the know-it-all, then you feel like they're not going to be very, very good at demonstrating courage. It, it's going to be tough because a lot of what they see as courage is based on their expertise and their experience and their willingness to lean on that. And if you think about the environment that we're in today, none of us really have expertise. We have history, but we don't have expertise and experience about how do we lead through a pandemic? How do you lead through social unrest in a pandemic? How do you lead through social unrest and trying to operate my family who's taking school from the dining room table and bedrooms in a pandemic in a year with probably the most, I would call it difficult political environment we've seen in decades. Like it doesn't work in that system. If you're just leaning on experience and expertise, you actually have to get to a place like, you know what? This is different. We need to learn together. I need to learn from you. How do we collectively uh, move through this uncertain moment together? 
Like wow, that that itself takes courage. Wow. Okay, this fourth one, extend grace. What do you mean by that? Yeah, grace was actually the hardest one for me for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, I, I believe in separation in church and state, <laughs> even so in the separation of work and uh, religion. It doesn't mean you don't bring your religion to work, but, you know, I struggled, you know, was it this particular part of my life that I was trying to place into inclusive uh, leadership? And when I looked at the first three, I said, if I'm asking a leader to be vulnerable, to take on and learn new perspectives and have the courage to step out on what's right, what would prevent them from doing that? Because we want them to do all those bold actions. And when I thought about it, particularly even an executive, it's going to be that if I don't get it right, it's going to cost too much. you like, you can't fight against you know, human nature and human behavior. You have to work with it. And though you want people to be willing to step out when there is a cost, there is a point where people go, it just costs too much. And so without creating a space where people realize that they can fail and recover from it, that they can fail and that their leader is going to say, hey, you know what? I failed in this place too. Let me help you up and let's move forward. It doesn't mean there's an absence of accountability. It just means that we have a growth mindset and that we're willing to help people improve from failure. We actually encourage it sometimes because when you fail forward, you learn and that you find new ways of doing things. Um, it became clear that grace was the component that was missing from inclusive leadership. And even when I look for synonyms to try to avoid using what most people would perceive as a very churchy word, there wasn't a better word. And, you know, as I solicited feedback, even before we went more broadly with inclusive leadership, this particular word was the one that resonated the most with people, the word grace. I think it was what people were looking for to do the other three things. Well, actually, one of our cultural beliefs within my company and organization is that failure is not fatal. Now, some things are fatal, you know, stealing is fatal, but failure is not fatal. And, and that's a tough message to send out that you can make your mistakes because the only way that we're going to learn and grow and go to the next level is that we have to take some risks and risks sometimes means that we're going to fail. We're going to fall down. So good for you that you've taken that on as a practice within your leadership, within your company. Appreciate that. So what is the difference between leadership and inclusive leadership? I I truly believe when that as we think about like what leadership really means for an individual, you have someone who's an individual contributor who feels like I'm responsible for doing things or producing things. Then you have the leader whose responsibility is to, in my opinion, people. Leadership is the individual that recognizes I'm responsible for the growth and the uh, positive outcomes and the success of people. Like to me, that's leadership. Like when I recognize that, you know what, I want to make sure that wins podcast is the best it possibly can be. Like, you don't own that. Like, I feel like I own that as a person 
on the actual podcast. I take that on as a part of my leadership responsibility. In the same way that you say, Eric, here are all the things that that we should discuss and be prepared so I can help you show up as your best. That was you showing up as a leader, but it wasn't because your leadership was based on delivering a great podcast and neither was mine. It was our personal responsibility to one another, to the person in it. That's leadership. Wow. To me, inclusive leadership is more around the how. Again, I was trying to define the how for the organization and to help leaders see that you're not responsible just within a um, sort of narrow scope or vertical for specific groups of people. Like we're actually responsible for everyone around us that we interact with. And then how do you do that in a way that's uh, beneficial to you, but also beneficial to those in which you're going to impact? And so, you know, there's lots of things around like your leadership shadow. But I, I truly believe that each one of us, you know, whether, you know, you're at what I would consider a entry level role or sitting in the office of CEO, have an opportunity to show up as a, as a leader. Hmm. And what I wanted to do is give definition and language on how people could do that better and in a way that included more of us and not less of us. When you talk about leadership and, and business and for-profit, and uh, we've been talking a lot about a lot of different topics, a huge audience here as part of the Masters podcast are the youth. So what message do you, and I love it that you're also a youth minister, what's the strong message that you are delivering to the youth during these times? Yeah, and you know, a lot of what I do, particularly in youth ministry, is actually to remind the adults of how capable our youth are. And, you know, there was a point in time, maybe seven, eight years ago, where there was a lot of noise around millennials and, and Gen X and Gen Y and now the sort of alpha generation or post millennials that are coming up and how they're so different than everyone else. And, you know, when I stopped and thought about it, I realized that you do know that we raise those children that we're talking about right now. <laughs> They're a product of us. Right. And when you reframe it that way, it really causes people to rethink, you know, because, you know, a lot of the dialogue was, they, you know, they don't want to work the long hours. You know why they say that? Because we worked the long hours and we were the ones in the office until seven, eight o'clock and we missed the games. And we say, you know what, when you grow up and you have kids, don't do that. Right. Make time. They listen to us. Right. <laughs> Oh, that's such a great perspective. But now, we, now we're hiring them and we want them to do the thing that we asked them not to do, which makes me laugh. Right. Um, but the, the other thing I, you know, I, I really you know, focus on with youth is to get really clear on what their purpose is. I remember having this, this conversation, particularly with my oldest son, because when you get really clear on what your purpose is and what your talents are, you can begin to align those to what you do with your time and you're going to that's where you're going to find happiness and joy and success and you know the thing that everyone you know talks about you know going into college and coming out of college is how am i going to make money right to pay for all of this stuff that we call life 
And I said, but don't start with the money because you can often find yourself doing things that don't make you happy or trying to supplement that through buying things that don't make you happy. But when you get really clear on your purpose and you spend your time developing those talents that really enable that purpose, all the other things will begin to fall into place. And, you know, when, when you begin to help, you know, our youth think that way, it pretty much unlocks them around what they can go and accomplish. And it frees them from what often is, you know, you, you go to school and, you know, by the time you're, you know, 16, 17, you got to know what you're going to college for, which we all know in most cases changes five, six, seven times. Instead of really helping them get clear, like, what do they think their purpose are? What are their gifts? And how do you begin to explore those and, and really grow those talents? And so, I, you know, I've been really excited that, you know, through youth ministry, I've had the pleasure of working with some exceptional children that have gone off to become musicians and engineers and doctors and start businesses. And most of them, you know, when you meet them, you know, they just want to play soccer or, or football or go camping and, you know, um, have a study group. Like that's, that's what they're into. But when they start to develop those passions, you, you just see the amazing people they, they truly become. That's great. So I want to shift gears here a little bit and uh, talk more on a, on a personal level. So as a black man, from your personal perspective, what's the experience of being a black man in America today? Um, I, so personally, I would say it's, it's very challenging. It's challenging in, in two fronts. Uh, from a, a social perspective, there's just so much pressure. You know, there is a, the fear that people describe about, you know, when you get pulled over or you see a police officer, you know, that's, it's real. You know, um, someone hit my son's vehicle a few months back and he called home. I had to send him off to get, you know, Chipotle for dinner for the family. And he said, hey, someone hit my car. It was, you know, an older gentleman in a pickup truck. Dad, what should I do? And I said, just come home. I knew that the community that he was in and the fact that even though it wasn't his fault, he was parked when a person hit him. Depending how that narrative unfolded as he interacted with the man in the pickup truck and whatever police officer showed up and my son being nervous at the time, it may not go well. Wow. And so at the end of the day, a dent and having to pay to have his car repaired is far easier to swallow than my son being wrapped up in an altercation ending up you know in the back of a squad car or worse and i know that because of my own experience you know when you know i shared a story when my wife and i first started dating um i drove a, a all-black pontiac fiero and so for our younger listeners you can google pontiac fiero to see what it looked like but it was a little sporty two-seater and I told her, I said, hey, we were going to Hollywood video, again, dating myself, uh, to get a video to watch together. And I said, I just want to let you know that I'm probably going to get pulled over um, within a few minutes of leaving your home. And then she kind of snickered and said, you're kind of big headed and full of yourself, like you're not that important and you're not that big of a deal. 
And I said, no, this is probably what's going to happen. And we may have made it a mile, mile and a half. And sure enough, I got pulled over. You know, I pulled out my license and registration and asked what I was being pulled over for. And the officer said, I just need your license and registration. And, you know, it was a white police officer. And he took my information, went to the squad car, came back and said, well, enjoy your video. And I was like, you going to tell me why you pulled me over? And he's like, nope, enjoy your video. And the reality is, I knew why he was pulling me over. It was the same reason why when I would leave our home and, you know, by this point in my life, my mom had, you know, put together enough money to move the family to a nicer neighborhood. I would go visit a friend and walk to the video store from my home. And, you know, we would get, you know, grabbed. I've been thrown against squad cars. Where are you going? What are you doing here? And it was just because of who I was. And so this has been going on for such a long time. And I know that if I come in in my suit or business casual to uh, an establishment like a store or a restaurant um, versus coming in with, you know, uh, uh, some youth or some kids from one of my son's teams in sweats, I'm treated dramatically different. But I'm the same person. I'm the same, you know, sort of, church and business leader that I am all the time, but society sees me different, mm. you know, depending on whether or not I show up in a suit or not, because I'm already perceived to a degree as a threat because of the way that Black men are marketed in the U.S. And so I'm, I'm going to stop there to say something about others, because I just don't want it to be about Black men, though that is what I said is true. Black women and women of color in our country are struggling even more. And so as you're thinking about who you help, a lot of the programs that exist right now exist predominantly for Black boys, but there's not a lot happening for young Black girls. And though they do attend college at a higher rate, um, there's not a lot to help them for what they're going through in their life as well. And so, again, when you start to look at the data, and this is what I would really encourage individuals and organizations to do, is look at the data and see, you know, how are people faring in the education system? How are they faring in business? Look at the places where you have influence and really look at who's doing well and who's not and what you can do about it. These are the conversations that I personally need to have. I have some amazing people in my life, both in business and as friendships uh, who happen to be black. And I have never had this conversation with them. I have never stopped and asked them, what is your experience as a black man or as a black woman uh, in this country? I never had those conversations until all of this happened in the last several months. And so I am learning and I'm, I'm gaining insight. And then I always assumed that, uh, well, it was only black men who had that experience, that fear of being pulled over until a very beautiful, well-to-do black woman. So she comes from privilege, and yet she shared with me that she has that same experience, that same fear of being pulled over. And, and the experience of having her young daughter in the back seat, and she turns around and sees her beautiful young daughter fearful. Like, that, that never occurred to me, because there's a conversation that a 
that a white father does not have to have with his son or daughter that a black father does. One of the things that I will share with you when, you know, I'm really passionate about in this work is what really drives all of this behavior. You know, it, it is predominantly fear and blame based, right? And the blame comes from the underlying fear, to be honest with you. And so when I think about the perspective of the officer that is pulling me over or, you know, you know, in the past threw me against the car uh, without cause or all the other stories I could tell you, or the officer that pulled over the woman with her child in the back seat, is what's happening in their mind that's driving that behavior? Why, why does that fear exist? And so what I'm trying to do is to bring all groups of people together in a way that helps us to really think about like every human being is of immeasurable value. And if we take the time to really understand and get to know people for who they are as individuals, we'll often find that many of the sort of single stories and false narratives that we believe about them because of what society has portrayed about them are completely untrue. You know, one of my favorite quotes is a Mark Twain quote, and it talks about how travel is actually, it will actually eliminate prejudice and bigotry. Because when you go to places and you actually meet people and you interact with them, you realize though what was shared with me might have been factual, it's not true. Hmm. And what I mean by that is it was factual in in the sense that that event took place, the person that did it had these characteristics, but it's not true about everyone that displays those same physical characteristics. And so our society has learned that a black man in a hoodie is a threat. Well, that's not true of every black man in a hoodie. Just like every white man with a leather vest riding a Harley is not in a biker game, right? He's more likely actually a CEO who went and bought a really expensive bike to ride around (laughs) on the weekends. All right. (laughs) Well, you know, I can't believe we have to start to wrap this up. I need to do a version two and a version three with you. You have a lot of... uh, personal passions. My gosh, this list you have of family leadership, uh, root cause analysis, theology, photography, cooking, gardening, all kinds of things. If if you had to just choose one or two of your passions, which one would you choose? (laughs) Well, it it is tough, you know, but if I really were to choose um, two... And I can keep all the ones at the same level they are today. I would probably say photography and, and family. Number one, because if I did photography, I'd probably be able to double dip on the family thing some more. There you go. But I really enjoy just the joy of capturing moments and scenes and seeing life without it being sort of planned. So I'm not as much into um, portrait photography, though I had a colleague that challenged me. So I'm doing more of it, but I enjoy candid photography most of all. 
So to be able to go to an event, whether it's a wedding or, or I've shot a lot of sports events and races, but just to catch people in their day doing things mm-hmm. is my favorite um, way to uh, spend time doing photography because it just shows the realness of life and how similar we really are. You know, to catch someone who just got a random phone call, you know, in a busy downtown area and they're smiling. You know, often I'll take the family out and we'll go for a walk. I'll bring my camera with, and I just shoot while they're doing their thing. And some of the best pictures that um, we've shot together are just this really candid moments of them laughing or, you know, throwing, you know, um, you know, the wrapper of hamburger at each other for fun. Like the whole thing about being silly from earlier. And I think we all, you know, need to take more time to just capture the moments because it all goes by so fast. That's perfect. So, so what has this current pandemic and civil unrest taught you about life? It's really taught me to that, you know, you have to be clear around what your purpose is because most of life um, is outside of your control. We didn't have any real control over how we Um, would be able to respond to the pandemic. We didn't even know it was coming. Um, So we couldn't prepare for it. We all thought it would last weeks and now it has lasted months. However, if you're clear on your purpose, you can fulfill that in any arena, whether you're spinning it in your home, whether you're doing it uh, virtually like you are uh, when with the masters, it doesn't matter. And so, You know, what I um, pride myself in, you know, because I like to get into the tactics of things and and enable things, is as you get clear on your purpose and you start to dream, finding people around you can help bring that dream come true. may help bring that dream to reality. Because I think that for myself, that's the gift. I always don't have the biggest and the best dream, but I usually can find a way to help enable that whether it's to be a component of it or to really be able to build out a plan that helps bring that dream to life. I believe that that's what I did with inclusive leadership uh, for my organization um, and how I show up in ministry and as a coach. And I truly hope I'm showing up that way as a father and as a husband. And I hope I've done that for you today when uh, through your uh, podcast. Oh my gosh, you, you absolutely have. I, I hope uh, Best Buy takes really, really good care of you and pays you a lot of money because uh, I have a feeling there's a lot of companies who, after listening to this, are going to want to steal you away. So <laughs> they take really good care of me, and I, the love—the love is mutual. Um, and you know, I'm I'm a big component of finishing what you start. Well, so Eric, I just can't thank you enough having this time with you but also doing all of the studying and the research prior to having this interview with you, knowing that I needed to be real, real clear on, on what I wanted to gain from you and what I wanted to share and how I wanted to guide this. I did do a lot of research as I shared earlier, and I've just have gained so much by this uh, brand new relationship that we have. And and I'm very, very grateful. Thanks, Eric. No, uh, again, my pleasure. I'm humbled to be, I'm invited. Hopefully this is the beginning of a, a long life friendship. And uh, please thank your, your team for taking such uh, wonderful care of me, helping me understand um, how to engage on your platform. 
and making sure I had what I needed to, uh, to spend time with you today. Thanks, Eric. You're a good man. Keep it up. Same to you. <laughs>